Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Luke A., Andy S., Dave V., Cindy W., Paul M., and Joe G. Joining us today is Professor Jerry Thomas, OBE. Jerry is Professor of Molecular Pathology at the Imperial College London. Jerry is also director of the Chernobyl Tissue Bank at the Imperial College London. Jerry holds credentials as an officer of the Order of the British Empire, awarded by the Queen for her work and efforts to science and health. Professor Thomas, it is a Hi. pleasure. Thank you for coming on and accepting our invite and, and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Well, Jerry, let's start off by having you talk about your background and then why you decided to settle into the positions that you hold today at the Imperial College. Um, well, I guess, I mean, like most um, sort of 17, 18-year-olds with an interest in science, I wanted to go into medicine, didn't quite make the grades, and ended up doing a degree in pharmacology in, um, in Bath University. Um, I was always much more interested in the side effects of the drugs rather than the, the, the reason that we developed the drugs. So I had quite an interest in toxicology. Um, and I did a PhD looking at the clonal um, nature of, of thyroid tumours in animals. Um, and that was really because we were having a problem at the time using what we call now non-genotoxic carcinogens, things like some of, some of the pesticides, etc., which had a, an effect on the hormone system of the thyroid. And that meant when you gave them in high doses to animals, you sometimes ended up with thyroid tumours in the animals. So there was always a question of whether that mechanism would work in man. Uh, and so we need to know whether these were true cancers, i.e. they were monoclonal lesions or whether they were polyclonal and they're what we term nodules in the human. So that's how it all started. Um, and then we sort of developed a, an interest in mutations and that's where the molecular bit started to come into play. And then of course in 1986, which is a couple of years before I finished my, um, my thesis, um, we had um, the Chernobyl accident. And one of the things that was actually emitted from Chernobyl was radioiodine, which is the same thing that we've been using in, in animals to create animal tum uh, tumours in the animal thyroids. So there was a lot of um, sort of queries about what would actually really happen after Chernobyl. And of course, there was a lot of or rather a lack of information um, because of the Soviet system coming into play and things being quite markedly different from what they are now. Um, and eventually it became obvious in about 1990 um, that there was an increase in thyroid cancers in those who were children at the time of the accident. Now that was a very quick reaction to exposure to radioiodine and a lot of people were very surprised by it. Um, I think those of us who worked on animal models were a little less surprised because we knew that if you had growth on top of giving radioiodine then you got um, animal tumours fairly quickly. And in 1992, my boss, who was the preeminent uh, thyroid pathologist in Europe at the time, went over to Belarus with a, um, a colleague who was from Italy, who was an endocrinologist. 
And when he came back, he was visibly shaken by what he'd seen. Um, he'd had queues of children with thyroid cancer queuing up to see him and his colleague. Uh, thyroid cancer is very, very rare normally in children. So this was quite shocking. And then, of course, we wanted to know were these genuine tumours. So then we got interested in the pathology and it really all stemmed from there. Um, and we, we looked around for money to be able to start a, a proper collection of the, the pathological material from the, the children who had these cases so that we could start looking at the possible mechanisms that gave rise to these tumours. Take us back there to 1986. Just give us a, a flavor, a little bit of a, a picture, an understanding of, of when that happened. What were you feeling? What did you think? What was kind of the prevailing environment? Because you got to experience it. Yeah, well, when the accident happened, the first thing we heard about it was probably about a week after the accident. And the reason for that was the radioactive cloud went over Sweden and triggered an alarm in a Swedish power station. They thought they had a leak, and then when they investigated it, they realized it was coming from elsewhere. Uh, and then the, the next thing I sort of remember is the reports on the news. And um, I remember vividly one BBC report that sort of said, you know, that the cloud had gone towards uh, Kiev, but it was okay, there weren't any British nationals there. Uh, and then a bit later, there was another report saying, actually, no, there was a party of um, people from, I think it was either a school or a college that had been there. And that for a while, then it seemed to go quiet. Um, I don't think the world really knew what was happening. It was in the Soviet era when there wasn't a lot of information coming out. But then by 1990, it became apparent there'd been an increase in thyroid cancer in those who were children at the time of the accident. Jerry, tell us why you really like doing this work. Is it just a job for you or is there really a desire to really bring out fact and provide truth about a complex, difficult to understand thing that we can't see? different forms and levels of radiation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a scientist, you know, a true scientist at heart. I want things to be built on scientific evidence. Um, and we knew there'd been large studies of the lifespan studies that have been conducted after the atomic uh, bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And those uh, studies were starting to get to the point where they were starting to report fairly regularly. So there was, a, there was some work already going on on radiation, but of course the radiation from an atomic bomb is very different from radiation that comes from a nuclear power station. In the nuclear power station uh, scenario, what we're looking at is really volatile isotopes of iodine and cesium, whereas what you're really seeing in the atomic bomb is, is gamma radiation um, from the explosion itself. So the two, the two scenarios are a little bit different. Um, so we knew there was likely to be an increase in cancer, but from my point of view, this was an experiment we were never going to get a chance to repeat or should never have a chance to repeat. You don't expect nuclear power plants to, to have an accident like this. And so therefore it was important to make sure that we had the right building blocks to be able to study what was happening properly. And there always had been a, a big question from people were if, if something had been induced by radiation, was the molecular mechanism that was doing the induction of these tumours, was that different from the sort of tumours that you would de develop spontaneously? Because there are spontaneous tumours where we cannot allocate a cause, but we know those occur in the population generally. So I wanted to make sure that if we were going to study it, it was done properly, that everybody knew what everybody else was doing. And when meta-analyses were done, they were done properly without adding stud studies together that actually overlapped, which is really important when you're trying to get a real handle on the frequency of an observation uh, and, and to know that what you're dealing with is properly sourced, ethically responsibly sourced 
human tissues. It's very important, of course, to remember that post the Soviet era, there was no money for places like Belarus and Ukraine. So the scientists were struggling to keep their head above water and to manage all of this. So they, they, they need help, they need support, and we need to make sure the science was done ethically and properly. And I want to come back to that uh, a little bit later, specifically some of the findings that you had at Chernobyl and, and kind of get into more details on that accident and also on Fukushima. But I want mm -hmm. to go back for a moment. And I, I understand that you were at one time anti-nuclear. Tell us what reasons you had for taking this position. Well, I guess like most people born in the 60s, um, I had a slight confusion in my mind between nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Um, my politics are left of centre, and I think if you talk to most people who are left of centre, they really don't like atomic weapons and because of that, the association with nuclear power. So I sort of assumed that all the information that I had been fed was true, which as a scientist I should never have done, but, you know, I was young and impressionable, um, and thought that, you know, the potential um, for damage from a nuclear power plant was a lot more than we now realise it was. And I hadn't appreciated, of course, that the thing that would tell me that it wasn't as bad as it should be was the dose that individuals have. We'd assumed that the dose would be large. Um, but after all the stuff that we've done since Chernobyl, it's pretty pretty obvious now that actually the dose to individual people is a lot lower than we would expect, and therefore the health effects are going to be a lot lower. Do you believe that many in the anti-nuclear crowd share some of these same initial reasons that you had or that the anti-nuclear group is really fragmented into different schools of thought and what these differences might be? I think there is a definite trend for left of centre politically people to consider um, that nuclear power is not good. Um, I think that is changing. I think if you look at a lot of the green groups who also are naturally left of centre, you will find that many of them are having to rethink because now all of a sudden we have a much greater risk on our hands out of climate change. Uh, we aren't going to be able to turn the clock back and stop using the internet and things like that. So we're going to need electricity. So you have to look at the risks in context and then say, okay, I may have thought they were worse than we were, but we now have the evidence to suggest it's not as bad as it was and I need to rethink my position. And that's exactly what happened with me um, after Chernobyl. Once I started working on the health effects of Chernobyl and I realised they weren't what I had imagined they would be, I had to rethink how I felt about nuclear power. For a scientist, that's not a hard thing to do because you're, you're taught, if you're a good scientist, you should always think again if more evidence comes to light that might mean that you need to change your mind. So we like to say that we were less right than we were before rather than that we were wrong. But I can see for green campaigners who really strongly believe in something rather than base everything on science necessarily, it must be very difficult to sort of say, actually, everything I've been fed and everything I've understood to now is not quite right, um, because I think it's a different thought process that they go through. What exact events, can you give us, walk us back a little bit, think think back in the history here, what events caused you to re-examine your beliefs about nuclear and what do you see nuclear as today? I think the longer term studies we now have from Japan, from the atomic bombs, people think they're high dose studies. In actual fact, if you look at the constituents in the, in the cohort studies, half of them, about 45% to be thoroughly accurate, have doses of less than five millisieverts. So actually that cohort is very good at informing us about what happens to people when they're exposed to low dose radiation. 
which isn't what most of us thought they would be when we started doing the studies. We thought it was a, a high-dose cohort. But if you look at the constituency of them, that you know, half of them are, are, are low-dose. So you have the evidence that over time becomes much more mature and you become much more confident in from that cohort. Um, but also, you know, thyroid cancer is the only thing that we've seen after Chernobyl. And to begin with, people were extremely surprised about that because obviously there's cesium that comes out as well. And it wasn't until really I got my head around understanding the dose that individual isotopes give different tissues, and that depends on their physical half-life and their biological half-life, that I started to realize that the dose from cesium to most of the people who were exposed, um, which about 6 million residents, was slightly less than one CT scans worth over a period of 20 years. Then you start to realize why we say so little effect, in fact, no effect of the cesium. The iodine's a different matter. The iodine doses were a lot higher, but it only affected those who were children at the time of the accident, which is something as somebody who'd been interested in animal tumors, I should have realized because in the animal, if you, you give iodine, but then you don't give a growth stimulus, then you don't get tumors. And of course, that's exactly what you have with kids. Um, their thyroid is still growing. When you expose them to iodine, that means that the, any mutation that occurs in single cells will then be magnified by the natural growth that carries on, and that means you're more likely to develop cancer. Explain for us, just, just for the, the audience who doesn't fully understand what you just said in full, low-level radiation. Explain that to us for a moment in terms of uh, the example you provided with uh, Hiroshima, if I recall, and Nagasaki, and also the thyroid. What is the importance of the thyroid for people who may not know that and, and how, how that relates to radiation exposure? Okay, well, let's take the atomic bomb cohorts first. You know there was, um, in, in, when you have an atomic bomb explosion, you have an epicenter, and then the radiation spreads out from the, the site of that epicenter, and it spreads out very quickly. And one thing that you learn very early on in, in physics when you're studying physics is that the dose is related to the inverse square. That means as you move 10 meters away, your dose goes down 100-fold. Um, and all of a sudden, you start to realize how quickly that dose falls off. So many people who were very close to the bomb um, explosion actually died as a result of blast. A few of them that survived did have very high levels of radiation. You're talking, they, they refer to it as the weighted colon dose because it's a way of picking a, um, a particular tissue and, and referring to that as your sort of base level. And some of them had highish doses that were in terms of grays, um, or you could use this term sievert, but they were, they were high doses. But as you move away from the center, you then end up with doses that are all thousandths of a, of a gray or a sievert. So they become milli grays or milli sieverts. Um, and you realize that actually that dose drops off very quickly. So if you were only within about, um, only further away than about two kilometers, your dose was already dropping down to the milli sieverts level. That puts it into perspective. And the thyroid part, just, just the concentration of just uh, these these studies on thyroid and cancer-related yeah. issues with the thyroid. Can you just explain the thyroid, its function, and, and why why the cancers were showing up here? Yeah, the, the thyroid is located in your neck, and if you, if you feel your neck, you can probably feel it. It's just around your windpipe. And basically, the thyroid is responsible for providing hormones that govern your metabolism, so it's an extremely important organ. You, if you have your thyroid taken out, 
you have to replace the hormones that it would produce using um, fairly cheap um, you know, drugs called thyroxine, which replaces the thyroid, thyroid hormone. The key thing about thyroid hormones is they, are, they have a high concentration of iodine. So without iodine, you can't make thyroid hormones. Now, iodine is naturally quite rare Stable iodine is naturally quite rare in the environment. So in order to make sure that it has enough iodine to make your hormones that make your rest of your body function, the thyroid has a system whereby it, it takes in iodine from your bloodstream and holds it within the gland. It actually binds it within the gland. So if you replace the non-radioactive iodine that we have naturally in the background with radioactive iodine, what happens is that radioactive iodine floods into the thyroid more than any other tissue in the body and then gets bound in there. And if it has a short uh, physical half-life, like iodine-131 has a half-life of eight days and a longer biological half-life of about 100 days, that's the time it takes for half of the dose to naturally disappear and go through your body. Think like taking a paracetamol. You know if you take a paracetamol, but you might need to take another one four hours later. And that's the effect of the biological half-life. The drug gets metabolized and disappears. And it's the same thing with the iodine. But the, because the physical half-life is much shorter than the biological half-life, it means that the radiation will be emitted while it's in the body. So iodine is concentrated in one particular tissue and it's held onto in that tissue. And therefore the dose to that individual tissue is much higher than the rest of the body. Cesium is the opposite way round. Cesium is not concentrated anywhere in your body particularly. It has a longer physical half-life than its short biological half-life of, again, about 100 days. So the dose you get is much less than if it had a short physical half-life. Complicated, and that's why explaining all of this is quite difficult. It's not like taking a tablet that we're so used to taking. You have to factor in the chemistry and the physics and the biology as well. So for the anti-nuclear side, when looking at some of these facts that actually come out of the scientific studies. Is it more for this side, the anti-nuclear side, is it more of the provoking of emotion and fear as the basis for their position? Or do they really have a case with the facts that nuclear is like smoking? We know it's bad, but we continue to do it anyway. No, I mean, I, I think the problem as well is when you're looking at health data, health data is very complicated. If you think the number of times that we've seen things in the media, that says, you know, smoking is good, is, drinking is good for you, no, no drinking at all, it's all really bad for you. The number of times we get conflicting information from health reports should give you a key that actually looking at health statistics is, is quite complicated. When you're doing these sort of studies, you have to be able to know that the reporting has not changed over time, particularly when you're in long-term studies, the reporting has not changed over time. So you're not actually counting cases that you wouldn't have counted in the past. Um, many other things affect health and what we call confounders. So we know socioeconomic uh, status, mental health can affect your physical health considerably. So you have to be sure that you control for those factors too. And I think it's very easy if you aren't aware of how all these other factors join together and influence your statistics. It's easy to just go and take a figure and assume that figure is correct without saying, actually, how do I know that this is a valid figure and I'm comparing it with something um, in the same way? It's like comparing, you know, apples and pears and more apples and oranges. You need to know that you are comparing apples from two different time points or two different geographies rather than 
two di completely different things. So I have sympathy with people who look at the statistics and think you can just take it and it doesn't matter, but you do have to do an awful lot of work to make sure, sure you are comparing the right things. Um, I think there is an emotional response to radiation, and I'm sure that comes from some of the things that we were fed in the 1960s about the Cold War. Um, and I think once, once you let your emotions become the better of you, it's quite easy to believe things. And there is an awful lot of misinformation that's available to people. I mean, you think of the problems we've had recently over vaccination. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I had measles. The measles vaccination didn't exist. But I made sure that I vaccinated my children against measles simply because I know that in some cases it can cause injury and it can cause death. And so I knew the facts about vaccination and I knew the risks of, of, of not vaccinating my children was large, but the risks of actually having vaccination were, were low um, because I had the scientific facts in front of me. If you're fed things that aren't justified, and there's an awful lot of that goes on on the internet, I can see why you would come to a different conclusion and you'd be scared of radiation. Right. And, you know, these these things exist. I mean, if, if you didn't have these diseases, uh, obviously uh, it would, the world would be fantastic, but unfortunately they do exist and we have to calculate what is the better route to go. And yeah. I agree that uh, you, you have to have these things uh, Certainly in health and so forth, vaccinations is a is certainly a sensitive issue, and uh, I, I fall on the same side that you fall on with regard to this because you calculate the risk. They both have risk, and you make a decision to move. And I I find that really the the whole argument about nuclear power, the the both sides is fascinating because while the debate goes on, I like to say meanwhile that nuclear buildout continues globally as a net growth source of energy courtesy of places like Russia, China, India, mm -hmm. and the French, which represent nearly 40% of world population. So the commissioning of new reactors continues. And of course, we know that now with some of the new commissionings, we have uh, nuclear power that's that's designed to go out towards the year 2100. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really interesting, the, the different sides. And, and one of the other things, too, that, that comes up with, with the anti-side, and really there's a frequent kind of all-catching argument with anti-nuclear groups and really uninformed parties, and they hang their hat on nuclear waste. What are your hmm. thoughts on nuclear waste? Um, being a toxicologist by training, I'm a lot more scared of chemical waste than I am of, of radioactive waste. We really do know what to do with radioactive waste. We know how to make it stable. We know how to make sure it stays where we put it. And actually, you know, we don't actually produce that much nuclear waste. People think it's an awful lot, but I've been told that um, all the nuclear waste in, in the UK, all the high level nuclear waste would probably only fill about a quarter, I think it is, of, of our, our Wembley football pitch. And that's since we've been generating and we were one of the first adopters in the UK. Um, so people assume that this waste is like we imagine a huge waste pile, you know, where we would put on our normal rubbish from our houses. It's not like that at all. Uh, and some of the chemical um, toxins are, are a lot more dangerous. Heavy metals, for example, cadmium, lithium, things like that, um, can be quite toxic. And so actually do need very careful handling. And unlike radiation, they don't disappear from the environment. Radiation decays over time. So over time, it gets better. Whereas with some of the chemical agents, actually, you're just putting more and more into the system. So it doesn't disappear with time. Right. And and that is a huge concern with this new 
heavy duty push towards electrification of everything and yeah. batteries and yeah. on a, on a massive scale and also yeah. in a in a supply chain and a waste chain recycle chain that really is non-existent compared to other things that we like to keep track of like nuclear weapons and nuclear waste and things like these and so the how we handle the waste coming from this new push into big batteries everywhere that we look yeah. and, and go to whether we're talking about cell phones cars uh you know household household electronics and so forth that have batteries backup batteries for renewable energy that is a significant concern and a huge volume of material yeah. that needs to be replaced quite frequently and so it's it's interesting on that now i want to move over just a little bit jerry and talk about what are your thoughts on global warming uh which uh, really is called climate change today well, I mean, for me, I think if you believe in cli uh, climate change, which I think most people now do, certainly the scientific consensus is that it's real. It's something we need to do something about and we need to do it quickly. Um, and if you know anything about energy production, you'll realize that, yes, fine, I've got a solar panel on my house. It's absolutely great. I did have to put it on this morning because I hadn't been terribly sunny. And so I still needed my gas to get me some hot water. Um, and it's fine for sort of simple use like that. But in terms of actually being able to power the economy, to power huge, you know, industrial estates, being able to make sure that when somebody needs a CT scan, you can turn the power on. I think the only way you can do that is, is to use nuclear power to generate that. And of course, we're going to want more energy. You know, the, the energy amount that we consume is not going down. If anything, it's going up. And when we switch to um, electrical vehicles, which is a big push in the UK for, we're going to need an awful lot of power overnight because that's when people are going to recharge their cars. So I don't think, you know, battery power is going to solve it in as fast as we need to, but nuclear has the answers now. We just need to get on with building these nuclear plants. We have uh, two in construction in the UK at the moment. We have another three sites where we haven't started construction uh, and we need to be moving much faster if we're going to be able to keep the standard of living that we're used to in the West, and we're going to be able to do something about climate change, it's not going to be good enough just to use solar power and wind. It's too intermittent. It takes up too much land usage, which are going to be needed for growing crops and for you know, farming to be able to feed our growing numbers of people. So we really have a problem. We have solutions in our hands. We're just too scared to make use of them. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and there's really just, I, <laughs> you just can't compare whether you're talking dirty old coal, natural gas, geothermal, solar, wind, you name it. Uh, you just can't compare to the absolute superpower source of what nuclear provides. There's just yeah. nothing that compares. And yeah. so that's just what, what's what's fascinating about it. And I want to move over to, to radiation. I want to come back to that. Um, let's say you end up on a long flight traveling and you end up yeah. having a curious person seated on each side of you how would you explain radiation to them the types the levels what is dangerous what type of exposure will notably harm health and what radiation uh, exposures exist in everyday life how would you deliver them an understandable yet effective view on how it all works i think you sort of start off by explaining that radiation is everywhere there is absolutely nowhere on this earth you can go and avoid it. Um, and I have a game that I play with various groups. I played it um, actually yesterday at the Japanese school in the UK with a bunch of kids who are, who are heading off to Japan. And it sort of sets out different scenarios and gives people different doses. I have met nobody yet who gets it 100% right. 
because we all have unconscious biases about radiation and we tend to think that man-made radiation is much more dangerous for us than natural radiation whereas your body really doesn't care where the radiation source is it's the same thing um, but I, when I talk to people, I usually try and explain there's different sorts of radiation and so how you're exposed to those different sorts plays into the dose you get, that there is a straight line relationship between dose and effect, but at the lower end of the, of the straight line, the effect is so low that actually other things in your life have a much higher uh, likelihood of, of you getting cancer, for example, example smoking or drinking. Um, particularly and being overweight. I'm, I'm not a slim person myself and I know that um, by being overweight I run a higher risk of, of getting several different forms of, of cancer. But I don't sit and worry about it all the time and I can actually do something about it. Um, so I think you sort of start and, and try and find out what, what they think is going to um, give them radiation. Do they realise that there is radiation in the food we eat? Most people don't. Uh, do they realise that when they swim in the sea, they're swimming in uranium because there's a, a certain amount of uranium runoff from water courses that ends up in the ocean? Uh, and most people assume that these things are something that man has made and doesn't exist in the natural environment. Whereas I think if you can sort of say, well, actually they are there all the time and you're exposed to low levels of them and you've been exposed to low levels of them ever since man was on this earth, in fact, in earlier times, we might have been exposed to higher radiation levels. So therefore, we must have developed mechanisms that cope with them. And we know we have. Um, and then you can always talk about how wildlife is thriving in the Chernobyl exclusion zone, because the most important thing that you've removed there is man from the environment. We're far more toxic than radiation. Uh, we do more damage to, to wildlife than, than the radiation from Chernobyl has done. So I'd sort of try and make it a fairly light conversation, but try and explore what they already understand about it. There's no point in going to huge amounts of physics and biology with people because you don't know what their background is, but just give them a, a general a general conversation and, and then you have to sort of take it from there. Now, Jerry, is it true that, that our, our, all of our thyroids have a, an amount of radiation uh, inside of it? Did I, did I term that correct? Is, is that the truth or what's the status um, there? Well, iodine-131 is largely man-made. So unless you're exposed to iodine-131, um, which is a very short-lived isotope, then you wouldn't have necessarily any iodine-131. You might have a bit of iodine-129, uh, I think the isotope is. Um, but your thyroid won't have an awful lot of iodine in. Um, you're more likely to have potassium uh, than iodine because there's an awful lot of things that we, which are really good for us, like nuts and um, bananas that have quite uh, high amounts relatively of potassium in them. Um, and of course, carbon-14, we use carbon-14 for, for radiocarbon dating. So we're all exposed also to carbon-14. So there's an awful lot of elements that we are actually exposed to in very low levels. But iodine is probably one of the least, actually. Okay, and and uh, potassium. Why is it just naturally occurring that, that it's naturally you have occurring? That? It's a naturally occurring isotope. Okay, very interesting. And how about how about sunlight? Can you shed some light on that? There is obviously radiation from sun. Yeah, but that's different. That's UV radiation. It's non-ionizing, so it's not the same thing. You do get a cosmic rays as well, uh, which is what causes the increase in in radiation dosage when you fly. But the, the radiation that most people think of you get from the sun is UV radiation, and that's a very different form of radiation. It's non-ionizing. 
and I'm curious about that. So when you fly, tell us tell us what happens there. Give us give us the details on how we have increased exposure. Well, we have an atmosphere that protects us from uh, radiation that comes from space. Um, but as you go higher, obviously that atmosphere thins, so you will get more penetration of the radiation coming from space. Uh, and say if you fly over the poles where the atmosphere is thinner as well, you will get a slightly higher dose. So every time you take a transatlantic flight or you fly from here from Japan, for example, you probably get a dose of about 0.07 millisieverts. Um, so, you know, we all naturally are exposed to that. Now, the interesting thing is people say, oh, well, what about pilots and, and um, aircrew? Don't they have higher rates of cancer? Well, yes, they do, but not cancers caused by ionizing radiation. They have higher rates of melanoma, and we know melanoma is caused by UV radiation from the sun. And I'm afraid what people tend to do is they out in a nice warm climate for a short period of time, they run off the plane, they take off their clothes, they lie in the sun and they forget to put on sunscreen. And that's why air crew have a higher rate of melanoma. They don't have higher rates of other cancers that would suggest that anything that they do in being exposed to ionizing radiation causes any problems with their health. And they're fairly well monitored because obviously you've got to be fairly fit to fly. You don't fly a plane unless you've passed the medical. Well, and it's interesting down to, you know, where I live, uh, closer to the equator, um, I can step outside and, and get burnt quite quickly. And, and I don't remember getting burnt like that back in places in the Northwest and the United States and North America. <laughs> no, the, the sunlight is, is much weaker, um, obviously, the further north you go. But having said that, if you, if you go out uh, in uh, you know, Sweden or places like that, I can get quite fierce sunlight at times up there as well. I mean, you should not go out in sunlight without wearing proper protection, because we know there is this very strong link between melanoma, which does kill you, um, and UV exposure, and you should certainly not go red. Um, I, we see it very often on our beaches, because we don't get very good weather very often. People just go out, forget to put sun cream on and lie in the sun, and they come back and they're bright red. You can always tell when we've had a fine weekend, people come into work a little redder than they went out. <laughs> well explained, because it's, it's actually helping me as well. Give us just a little bit more here. What would you caution everyday people to stay away from or limit their exposure to with regards to radiation? With regards to radiation, UV radiation, certainly. Uh, with regards to any other radiation, I don't think there's anything you need to be nervous about at all. I mean, okay. if you think about it, ironically, probably the best treatment we have for cancer is still radiotherapy. When we give patients very, very high doses, but focused to a particular point, um, but we do give them quite high doses of radiation. It's still one of the most effective treatments that we have for many forms of cancer. Okay, and should I stay out of the dentist office and away from airport security screening? No, I mean, those doses are so slight that you don't need to worry about that. Okay, now I wanna move on to radiation monitoring in various industries. Where should people and policies be paying attention and what are the more laughable things going on out there? I think we tend to be a little overcautious when it comes to radioactive exposure. So we have a precautionary principle when we talk about radiation protection. So we're always trying to safeguard everything from you know anybody from everything. Um, and so we have made an awful lot of rules that take the dosages down to very, very low. And the problem is when you get to the point when you're trying to protect somebody from one risk, you can very often introduce another risk. And a good example of that was in Fukushima. They were so focused on reducing any possible exposure to radiation that they made people wear huge amounts of protective clothing. Now, that's OK if it's cold, but if it's boiling hot, 
people then can overheat and actually bodies don't cope with being very hot for very long. Um, and so they had one fatality where somebody had, had actually fainted due to the heat and, and fell off, um, you know, one of, the, one of the tanks that they had been using. Uh, and he got so hot because he was wearing so much radio protective gear. So you have to be careful when you're trying to protect people from one risk, you're not actually introducing other risks. And I think we've gone so far down the radiation protection that now we are making life too difficult and trying to avoid risks, which puts up the costs of nuclear power, which we don't need to be protected from because actually there's no real health risk there. But we just like to be as precautionary as we possibly can. And what about Fukushima? What false information coming out of the efforts there? And what have you noticed uh, to be to be accurate and false? I think one of the most difficult things with Fukushima was we, we have this knee-jerk reaction that we have to run away from radiation, where actually the best thing to do would be actually to shelter in place and treat radiation as if it was a, a chemical exposure, which, you know, very often you will you'll go inside, close your windows and doors, stay there, and we'll, we'll come and take you out as and when necessary. So I think the knee-jerk response to leave the area as quickly as possible definitely caused casualties. And I think we, one thing we do need to think very, very carefully on is if there is another nuclear accident, do we evacuate or should we leave people there, assess the situation and then decide whether we need to evacuate? Because at the level certainly that we saw from Fukushima, there wasn't really any need to evacuate people and keep them away for the length of time that we have. When you, when you look at Chernobyl and you realise how little effect cesium has had, uh, people could have gone back in Fukushima a lot sooner than they did. But having said that, of course, there was also the damage caused by the earthquake and the tsunami that also had to be remediated before people, people could safely move back. Um, so I think that's one thing we should be looking at this. And, and we had produced a review to celebrate, if that's the right word, the 25th anniversary of Chernobyl, which of course was the same year as Fukushima, but the following month, and sort of saying the one thing that we have not learned from Chernobyl was how to communicate the real risks around radiation exposure. And I think we saw the same panic um, born out uh, post Fukushima. So of course there were you know, mad things about you couldn't eat food, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, you couldn't do the other. You needed to limit the food for a short period of time, and the other thing that really upsets me is um, when I go to Japan to see all of the fields covered with these big plastic bags full of soil, really good topsoil that could be used for growing crops. And if they spread it out, the dose per inch would be a lot less than what they've actually got in those, those big bags there. They're a permanent reminder to people of what happened and the fear around radiation. But also they've, they've actually destroyed most of the topsoil there, which they need for growing crops. And that's, again, because of the, the resultant fear of radiation. Very interesting. Thanks for the insights on that. And I continue to, to struggle with uh, regarding Fukushima is, is the label itself, when in fact it should be called the Japan Earthquake and Tsunami of 2011. Yeah. This act yeah. of nature killed tens of thousands of people. Yeah. I think the yeah. toll was in the 20,000 range. Yeah, 20,000 in the tsunami. Right, and hundreds of billions of value destruction, a terrible, yeah. powerful, and saddening event. But now it's referred to as a nuclear accident called Fukushima, a complete yeah. misconception and misallocation of attention, in my view. Absolutely, I totally agree with you. You know, if that loss of life had occurred in my country, 
we wouldn't be talking about the nuclear accident. Well, I would hope we wouldn't. You know, 20,000 people is a hell of a lot of people to lose in 30 minutes flat, which is what happened. To most of us, that is completely impossible to understand or comprehend. Yet all we talk about is, you know, the disaster, which I, I hate the term disaster. We made the disaster. It was an industrial accident. And we then compounded it and made the disaster by the response we had to it. You know, nobody lost their life as a result of that nuclear um, accident. Nobody will lose their life, not directly from the radiation, but many people will lose their lives because they live in fear. And living in fear is not a pleasant way to carry out your life. Right. And, and perhaps the focus should be on earthquake resistant construction, tsunami protection measures, and maybe backup power and where non-calculable risk resides. But, but I mean, just down the, the coast from there, you have another nuclear power station Fukushima Daini, and there they lost power too, but they were able to drag a um, an electrical cable across the ground and plug it back in. So they were able to then cool the reactors. The reactors all shut down in both power stations. The only thing that went wrong in, uh, in Daiichi was the fact um, that they couldn't keep the reactor cool. And that was because somebody had thought it was a good idea to put diesel generators on the floor in, um, in on the ground floor in an area that you've only got to look at it to say it was a flood risk, uh, should there be a tsunami. I'm surprised that somebody hadn't thought of that. But that just shows how sometimes we don't plan for risk. I don't think you'd find that many power stations now would ever be in that situation. You know, right. we, we think now of, well, what if, and there are several what ifs now that go on in people's mind. But, you know, ironically, the power station just literally just down the road was perfectly fine because they could reconnect the power to keep the, the, the reactors cool. And if they could have done that in Daiichi, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah, the refueling of backup power, uh, I understand, was a, was a significant issue there, which uh, yeah. caused what we had. So speaking of risk, how do you view risk and the terms like safety, safer, safest, mm -hmm. when it comes to your own work and, and how you view risk and safety in your view of the world? Well, well, first of all, everybody has their own idea of risk, and that's part of the problem. There is absolutely nothing you can do in life that is without risk. Um, I drive into work into London every day, and I can tell you probably one of the most risky things I do is drive along that road every morning. I, I'm convinced it's a matter of time until I'm involved in one of the many accidents I see on that road. You know, it may not be my fault, but if you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know sometimes things happen. So I think, I mean, I, I view risk in terms of if you're looking at health risks, it's looking at the common risks that we all uh, know about, but don't seem to care that much about, like being overweight, like drinking, um, like, um, you know, getting so stressed over things. We all know that the, that the stress can have a, a major effect on, on your health. Um, not getting enough exercise, those simple things that, that we could do. So I tend to look at risk that way. But I think you also have to look at risk in terms of not focusing so much on one risk that you become obsessed with it. It's almost like obsessive compulsive disorder sometimes with radiation. You know, we, we, we treat that as a psychiatric problem when you become focused on one risk that you have to wash your hands 20 times before you can leave the room or something like that. That is a, a misappropriation of risk to one factor. And I think we're almost at that point with radiation, at least in some people's minds. So, um, Maybe I'm a little less scared of risk because I'm aware of other risks around me. And so, you know, I've had several operations. I know having an operation is risky. I'm absolutely convinced every time I have an operation, 
that I probably won't survive the anaesthetic because I'm a pharmacologist, I understand about anaesthesia, but at the same time, I'm able to say, no, don't be silly, it's a tiny risk. The risk is if you don't have this operation because you're too scared, you're going to be sicker than if you do. So I think everybody has to come to their own way of handling risk. And most of us do that pretty well in our general lives. It's when a risk comes, becomes out of proportion that you have a, have a problem. And I think we have a, a duty of society to look at our own personal risks in comparison with the risk we might be putting society at by holding those views as well. And I think we're at that stage with nuclear power. There are many people who are still scared and don't understand the risk and are not capable of, of compartmentalizing that risk so that you can have a proper discussion around future energy use going forward. All the other forms of energy also have their own risks. We're just blissfully unaware of most of them. In actual fact, when you do the stats, nuclear power comes out as the least risky of all potential options of generating power. Uh, most people can't believe that, but if you look at the facts, that is definitely the case. So we have to start having those discussions around that. Otherwise, we, we are potentially risking the planet by not being able to, to get our risks in order. Well said. I want to ask you a little bit, uh, speaking of this, you mentioned some of the disasters that occurred from the evacuations alone, which caused casualties. And I think those apply both in Chernobyl and in the case of Fukushima. Does the agencies like the IAEA, have they come out with a framework or some kind of an emergency response system that can be interpreted and translated to governments to understand what actions should be taken if this if these types of events ever happen again do you do you believe that is a good approach i, I mean it's, it's interesting you you can't tell governance what to do you can give them advice you can offer potential scenarios but at the end of the, at the end of the day it's actually the individual governments must make those decisions and that depends on the scientific advice that the governments are given um you know for example the the the, the british scientific advice was do not evacuate the embassy in Tokyo. Tokyo is perfectly okay. Um, other countries decided to, to move their embassies during the Fukushima crisis, which I think actually gave the wrong message to a lot of people as well. So it really does depend on the scientific ad advice you've got. No, I think you I think you hit it, but I, I just, some of these, there should be more of an effort uh, from yeah. my understanding yeah. from these agencies like the IAEA, which is really an international organization to say, hey, we've we've come up with, a plan taking all the different facts and scientific results on base based on emergency preparedness and how these disasters and accidents should be approached from a standpoint of emergency preparedness, emergency action. Well, I mean, there was advice given to the Japanese and there's a dose range of between 20 and 100 millisieverts um, at which you can decide whether you should evacuate. If it's below 20 millisieverts and the advice is don't bother, but there is a range up to 100 millisieverts um, which countries can use to decide whether they wish to evacuate or not. Now, the, sadly, if they'd chosen the upper of that range, say 100 millisieverts in Japan, then if, if you choose the upper limit of that, then you wouldn't have had to evacuate anybody. Um, the Japanese chose to be ultra cautious possibly because of their history of radiation, and chose to, to take the lowest limit, which is 20 millisieverts, which was not something that all of their scientists would have advised them to do. But that's the decision the government took, and that's why they, they did evacuate. Um, if they chose 100 millisieverts, they wouldn't have had to evacuate. But I think it's difficult for international bodies like IAEA, because they can only offer advice. 
they can't dictate to governments. So I want to go back to Chernobyl and radiation effects there. Give us, give us uh, your studies that were completed. Give us kind of a brief overview about that work. And I know it's still ongoing. And what were the findings at this point? Yeah, I mean, the findings so far um, are the ones that are detailed in the various UNSCE reports. Um, so the UNSCE report of 2008 in Annex D clearly states there were three people who died on site as a result of the accident. So one person was buried under rubble and I believe they still have not found his body. Um, one person had thermal burns because there was a fire and you know thermal burns kill you very, very quickly. And there was one guy who had a heart attack, which I think is quite understandable given the situation. Um, then there were 146 people who had acute radiation syndrome. So over 200 of people were actually taken to hospital. Only 46 actually met the criteria for acute radiation syndrome. And this is when you've had so much radiation that it starts to affect your stem cells and it's nausea, vomiting, uh, diarrhea. And then you may have other things that set in, which involve stem cells in your blood. So you can't fight infection. You can't produce your blood cells uh, in your gut. So you can't absorb food in your skin so the skin doesn't repair itself. So those of those 146, 28 died. Interestingly, all of those actually had additional complications of either thermal burns or beta radiation burns to the skin. And of course, when you're, once your skin is compromised, it means you are very likely to succumb to um, infections and things like that. So it's a, it's a complicated scenario that the doctors had to deal with. The 28 of the people actually died within a few weeks or months of the accident. Within that cohort, there have been 19 further deaths over the years, but actually it's been very difficult to attribute those to radiation. I mean, we all die, I'm afraid. You know, it's one of those, those problems that we have with living. Death is inevitable. It's just when and how um, death arrives for you that, you know, you, you can't predict. Um, but 19 of them have died subsequently, some of them easily related to lifestyle choices like drinking, like smoking, uh, driving cars erratically, those sort of problems. And then you have about up to date now, about by 2017, we had about 20,000 thyroid cancer cases in those who were children and adolescents at the time of exposure. So in 1986, they were under 19 um, uh, of years of age. Now, not all of those are due to radiation. Um, about 50% of us will die having a thyroid cancer that we are blissfully unaware of because your thyroid produces very small tumours that are subclinical, so we don't have any symptoms. And some of us will, will have thyroid cancer when we die. And so you have to take into account there's an increase in screening, there's a natural frequency of thyroid cancer, and attributing what fractions due to radiation is actually quite difficult. And there's been a lot of work done just recently, which would suggest that probably about 25% of that 20,000 cases are due to radiation. Um, so that's about 5,000 cases. Now, thyroid cancer actually is one of the cancers that we are best at treating. So if you give high doses of radioiodine, you result in a mortality rate for thyroid cancer of only about 1%. And, and it can take a long while for that 1% to become apparent because you can keep carrying, treating uh, radiation, uh, a thyroid with radiation when it comes back until a point when it no longer responds to the radiation. 
And that can take sometimes 50 years in patients. So there's only been 15 deaths so far, but we would predict overall about 1% of the cases would die from thyroid cancer if we don't improve techniques of treating thyroid cancer, which over a 50 year period, we might well do. Um, we reckon in total, we will probably have about 16,000 excess thyroid cancers in that cohort over their lifetime. So that would roughly equate to about 160 deaths. So if you add all of that up, we could be predicting deaths around about 200, 250. Now, there are other people who are exposed to uh, the people who cleared up the mess after the accident. They're called liquidators. And about 600,000 of those who are involved in long-term studies so that their health is being monitored. Um, so far, we have not seen an increase in cancer in that cohort. There have been a couple of recent reports that, and I'm quoting saying, a non-significant increase in a type of leukemia that we do not normally associate with radiation. Whether that is true or not, we will need more time to find out. But we originally estimated maybe 4,000 amongst that 600,000 might get a radiation-induced cancer. That's looking less likely with time. We may have overestimated that figure. So we could be looking at around about 200 deaths over a 50, 60 year period from Chernobyl. We might be looking at slightly more. It's very difficult to say, and it's going to be very difficult to know exactly how many cancers were caused, but certainly nowhere near the hundreds of thousands that you see in some reports. So many groups have consistently cast fear and misconceptions about Chernobyl radiation. Share with us their biggest arguments and how your work has really brought out a different, more credible perspective. Well, it's not just my work, it's lots of people's work. I mean, most of the epidemiology studies have been, have been done by others, which really inform this. But there have been reports of hundreds of thousands of people who you know, have been affected by Chernobyl, have got this, that and the other disease. You have to remember that states often pay out um, because it's it's easier and quicker than going to court and probably cheaper in the long run, the amount that, that lawyers earn. Um, so they, they will label people and give them compensation without actually having to prove attribution of their disease type to exposure to radiation. Science doesn't work like that. Uh, we have to be certain that something has been caused by that for us to say that is attributable to uh, radiation exposure. So you can see where some of the figures might have come from, but in terms of saying scientifically this is a cancer that we think is highly likely to be caused by radiation, proving it is difficult because we don't have any biomarkers that say this cancer was, uh, was um, caused by radiation whereas this cancer was caused by something else. So we can only go on inference, but it does look as if uh, the lower figures are really what the truth is. And it's difficult to imagine wholesale and destruction that some people envisage when you know the doses are less than a single CT scan to most of the population. Jerry, we would not do it a full service without mentioning Three Mile Island. Your yeah. thoughts on Three Mile Island? Three Mile Island, there was virtually nothing in terms of radiation dose to the individuals. It was less than one transatlantic flight to the population in that area. So Three Mile Island really doesn't cut the mustard when you look at the sort of uh, Chernobyl and uh, and Fukushima, it was even less than Fukushima. So there's really nothing to see at Three Mile Island, which is why we can see no health effects. 
Right. It was certainly a, a more of an opportunistic uh, vehicle for people to build a platform of really yeah. incorrect information. And, oh, I was I was traumatized. And quite honestly, well, I mean, traumatized uh, is one thing, you know, men mental mental health from the fear of radiation. But that's not the same as saying it was caused by the radiation. And we have to be very clear about that. What we are looking at is the radiobiological consequences, the direct effect of the radiation on human tissues. How people feel about it is a whole other ball game. But you can alter how people feel about things by providing appropriate information. Yes. Probably people yes, used I've... to fear electricity and gas in, you know, in early times, but we don't any longer. We don't think about electricity and gas any longer. Yes, correct, and and that's that's the you know that's that's the interesting part is whether you're in a war zone, or you've been you've been robbed at gunpoint, these these types of things how that compares traumatization is is a is a completely different ball game and spectrum. Yeah. I, I I completely agree. And that and that's something we can very much influence as well. It's not it's not it's not a you know foregone conclusion. You you can help people in those situations if you know how to do so. Now, Jerry, have you done any work related to radiation exposure at mining operations or old closed mine sites? Have you have you uh, no, looked at no, this? No, I haven't. But but again, you're, you're looking at, um, I take it you're talking about uranium and things like that. That's not the sort of thing that I've been involved in. There have been some studies of them, and, and in the main, they show very little health effects. Again, people are, are worried about long-lived isotopes like uranium. But actually, uranium is very boring because the actual retention of the body is in a matter of days and its, it's physical half-life is many, many, many years. So the dose you get from something like uranium is very, very, very small. And therefore, the health effect, because you have a straight line effect between health effects and, and uh, radiation dose, is going to be tiny. Do you feel like that there's a focus on that at times for, for some of the maybe the anti anti mine anti sense type of, of thinking when it comes to just mining? Yeah, I, I find it really interesting when you talk to people about different isotopes and uranium and, and plutonium terrify people. I've been in meetings of extremely intelligent people who said, oh, plutonium is the deadly thing known to man. No, it's not. I think Novichok prove there are much more dangerous things uh, you know naturally in the environment you know snake venom and things like that much more dangerous than plutonium plutonium is an alpha emitter you can easily protect yourself from the effects of plutonium and it's a very long-lived half-life so even if you had a bit of a plutonium it's probably not going to do you that much harm but we have this we've demonized certain uh, chemical elements um most of them radioactive that we feel very strongly are highly dangerous when actually the science shows you the complete opposite but I guess you have to understand a bit of physics and biology. And for the man in the street, that might be a tough ask for a lot of this. Sure. And I think I think we as, as uh, humans have devised instruments that are, are much more dangerous, whether we're talking about uh, airplanes or, or other things. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> a car, car can be pretty dangerous. And I can tell you that on the M25, a car can be a pretty lethal weapon. Uh, you know, we, we forget that many more people are killed in, in accidents, in cars, um, you know, and things like that, and melanoma again from exposure to the sun every year than you know even the maximum number we can think of with Chernobyl. Right. Well, we think we've got this so out of kilter. Uh, again, it's it's our problem around risk. We we find as a, as a species we find dealing with risk very difficult, especially right. when we feel that risk is imposed on us. No, absolutely. There is a there is a movie. Uh, 
that was uh, called uh, Lord of War that starred Nicolas Cage, and I, I believe the the comment on that uh, that that movie was that uh, that firearms are the real weapon of mass destruction, not the missiles yeah. that sit in the silos. Yes, uh, yeah, I agree with you. You think how many how many horrible things you've had happen in states with farms, and we have it here now in in London as well. So we're not completely without the the issue of firearm discharge in inappropriate places. Jerry, what can ordinary people do to help point others who don't know, who are on the fence or against anything called nuclear or radiation? Is there a, a scientific, factual, correct direction that you can kind of help them go to? There's two sources that I know of, and I'm, I, I must admit I'm very UK focused. Um, there are lots of industry-led web, web pages. For example, the World Nuclear Association has some really good fact pages. People don't like going there because they feel, because it's the nuclear association, it's automatically biased. But actually, they're really well-resourced web pages. So if you want information about anything to do with nuclear, economics, all the rest of it, I'd go and look on the World Nuclear Association's pages. They aren't biased. People do query quite uh, a lot of them, and they will go and talk to scientists who know what they're talking about to get the facts straight. If you want something that is not written by industry, you feel more comfortable going to that, I just Google radiation restatement on Oxford Martin School. And there is a paper there, uh, which a group of us spent three years arguing over, um, which tries to explain, our, our goal person was a history graduate who's advising ministers, that's who we were writing this for. Um, so it's, it basically goes through all the evidence we have for radiation health effects and tells you which one we are absolutely certain about, that there is no, no question that this is true. Ones where we think we're getting to an answer, um, but more studies need to be done. And other ones where there is absolutely no consensus at all, and we probably need to put in an awful lot more work if we can actually answer the question. So that's a good place to go. And there's also a good um, thing on the Sense About Science website in the UK uh, on radiation that's, that's also quite easy to digest. I think a lot of the problem is a lot of stuff around radiation is quite hard to digest. You can also get all the unskier reports um, straight off the internet. Anybody can download them. It's it's all there. It's a question of how much detail you want. And unfortunately, a lot of it is quite detailed. But if you just read the, read the executive summaries of the unskier reports, you get an awful lot of information that way as well. What do you believe that some of these industries associated with radiation, such as the nuclear power industry, what can, do you think they should be doing to get people more informed and in a reasonable and correct manner? I think stop using the word safe all the time. I think that doesn't actually help them get their message across. I think safe is something that's very relative. Something that is safe for me may not be safe to somebody else. And, and if you if you use the term safer, the inference of, of course is always it wasn't safe before, and that makes people worry. Um, I think there could be an awful lot more information provided on the basics. I think we need to look at the way we educate children. For I'll give you an example of that. My uh, daughter was uh, in her I think it was a geography lesson or a history lesson um, in her junior uh, first year in a senior school, and um, the the book they were working from said thousands of people had died as a result of the Chernobyl accident. So uh, my daughter, being a chip off the old block, put a hand up in their air in the air and said that's not true. And the teacher said, of course it's true. It's in the book. And she said, but my mum's an expert on this. It's not true. And she wouldn't let my daughter speak. And then she had another lesson, and it was either the history or the, uh, the geography lesson again. Again, the same thing was repeated in the textbook there. I wrote to the school 
and I provided them with the latest scientific evidence, they didn't even respond. So you know you have a problem when, when our youngsters are being taught things that are wrong in schools. And I, I actually make a point of going into quite a few schools and, and talking to them about radiation. A lot of kids don't even do science any longer to the depth that they need to do. So I think educating our young people about this, I think, will be good. Um, that would be a great start. I think we need more legible websites. You can find them. I mean, I've found some really good online stuff for, for teaching kids, but there's an awful lot of rubbish written out there as well. So you have to have a reasonable understanding yourself to be able to sift through what is good and what is not. But I think, you know, a, a website that provides you with the science in a digestible manner would be absolutely great. But there will be other websites springing out who will provide you with a pseudoscience in a digestible manner. And maybe that's where we've gone wrong. Maybe we don't make this understandable enough for people. Uh, because we're so conscious of using the wrong terminology and it just confuses people. Well, I agree. Your, the, the additional effort needs to be done and your example with your daughter uh, completely uh, makes a synopsis for the truly sad state of, of education and, and some modern advanced economies and it really or societies really, and it's really, really a sad uh, state of affairs. At the, um, at the Japanese school in the UK here yesterday, and so there's a group of scientists who are going out to go and do a, some scientific um, exchange work in, in Kyoto. And I said, you know, the problem that your generation have, which my generation didn't have, is you have to sort through what is science and what is pseudoscience. Most of the time when, we, before the days of the internet, that shows you how old I am, um, you learnt things in textbooks, you learnt things in papers, they were peer reviewed, and I think less rubbish was written. At the moment, you can put anything you want out. Um, there are journals that are not that are created especially to get voices heard. And if you don't know your way around this and what is a good journal and what is not a good journal, it's very, very difficult to actually find out what the truth is. And I think the generation that's coming through school now probably has the hardest decisions to make. They're going to be the ones who have to deal with climate change. I'll be dead. It's the next generation that's going to have to deal with climate change. But they have to do it from scientific principles when those scientific principles have been eroded away by the internet and by people being able to say whatever they want without any proper evidence. And that wisdom and intelligence transfer is a big deal. Uh, yeah. It's it's to, to be able to conserve and protect that is a big deal that we're facing as gener generations change out. And like you said, you're absolutely right. It's like a big, uh, uh, you know, container of rubbish you really yeah. have to go in there and sift through all the trash to get to what you need to find that's correct yeah and uh, yeah. it really is a true challenge that we have um what what would you say to a person who has made an uninformed anti-nuclear decision or that a, a person believes that the word radiation only exists in nuclear weapons and commercial nuclear power what would you say to a person who has seen the headlines on tv but has failed to look and understand these forces I would say go and look again, uh, go and look on reputable websites and I, I would always point people towards the BBC in this country, I mean I know a lot of the science journalists there and they want things right, so I would look on a reputable source, something like the BBC if you're an English speaker would, would be ideal. I would say the evidence that radiation is as bad as some people would have you believe just doesn't exist. And all the scientific evidence from multiple scientists right around the globe with multiple different disciplines is sort of uh, brought together in things like the UNSCEAR report. So you really need to look at those again. But if you really 
aren't happy with radiation and you don't want nuclear, then you have to think what the alternatives might be. And, I, and David Mackay's book is also a very good one. He's a professor or was a professor at um, Cambridge, sadly, he's, he's dead now. Um, but his, his book, um, Sustainability Without the Hot Air, is also a very good read, which sort of explains some of the misconceptions we have around power generation in, in general. So I think there's lots of places you could go for that, but you do need to be careful that the source is reliable um, and I'd look for where most of the consensus is, is, is pointing. So that radiation restatement is a good place to start looking at that. But some people just don't want to change their minds. Some people are absolutely convinced. And, you know, we always say it's a bit like a religion. There are some people who will believe and will refuse to change their ideas. And I don't think there's an awful lot you can do about people like that. If they don't want to look at the science and they don't want to be dispassionate about a subject, it's very difficult to change opinion. Right. Yep. And we're going to have that. That's that's absolutely correct. How can folks reach out to uh, the Imperial College London or direct contact you? How might they also go about fact checking some of the information that you provided for those who like to look for themselves? Um, again, I would say point you towards the UNSCE reports and the radiation restatement. Um, if you want to get hold of me, if you just Google me on the and, and use Imperial College as well, um, you'll find my email addresses on the, the web pages there, you can get a hold of me that way. That's by far the way the easiest way to get a hold of me. Well, Jerry, talking with you has been about these subjects has been really a pleasure. And thank you very much for taking the time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much.